welcome to the Amor Mundi podcast from the Hannah Arendt Center for Politics and Humanities at Bard College. Amor Mundi means love of the world. We are here to explore ways of thinking together and loving the world in the spirit of Hannah Arendt. During the social isolation of the coronavirus, the Amor Mundi podcast will speak with writers, scholars, and activists in a series called Thinking the Plague. This is episode 10, Revitalizing Democracy Through Citizen Assemblies. It features the Arendt Center's founder and director, Roger Berkowitz, and Jonas Kuntz, co-founder of the Bard Institute for the Revival of Democracy Through Sortition, giving a talk and leading a discussion over Zoom. The talk was organized by Lawrence Davis Hollander, and the Scoville Memorial Library, and took place on Saturday, April 18th, 2020. Thanks very much, Lawrence, and uh, thank you all for being here. There's some uh, some friends and, and colleagues in the quote-unquote audience here, so um, it seems that we'll have a lot of very high-powered and thoughtful people. So I'm going to try and, and get through this quickly and give us some time for a spirited debate and question and answer and, and let you guys participate as well. So the title of, of the talk that uh, Lawrence and I came up with is Democratic Revival Using Lottery in Citizen Juries. The basic idea here is that I think many of us are acutely aware of what we call a crisis of democracy, a democratic deficit. There's just a profound sense around the world, uh, certainly here in the United States, that democracy is broken, that there's a motivational deficit. And if you look at much of the theory and many, much of the theory in left-wing and politics in the last 10 to 15 years, a lot of it is sort of assuming almost the impossibility of democracy working as a way to bring the voice of the people into politics. A lot of theory now sort of says we can't actually make uh, government democratic, and what we have to do is sort of find islands of freedom outside of it through protest or alternative communities or things of that. So a host of thinkers as wide-ranging as people like Simon Critchley, who argues that freedom is only to be found in protest against government, or, or David Graeber, who again argues that it's in protest against government that we find freedom, not in government itself, or people like Jacques Ranciere, again, arguing that politics is always about a kind of consensus and that we need to find freedom in dissensus against government. You're seeing a wide range of people turn against government uh, for a whole lot of reasons. And I think a big part of it is a strong sense, and I think not an unjustified sense, that democracy as it's being practiced in the West is not working. Is not Well, we have to ask what working means. And I think when we talk about how to fix democracy or reform democracy or the word I I'm currently trying to use revitalize or revive democracy. There's two different ways we can address the problem. One is through broadening the electorate. So if you look at the United States, over time, we've brought more people into the electorate, be it, be it more poor people, more women, more blacks, more other underrepresented people. And there's still a wide ranging movement for reform today. And so there's people who want to bring former criminals into the electorate, because in many states, former criminals are not allowed to vote. There's arguments against voter suppression and arguments for against gerrymandering and uh, for redistricting. And so all of these are, are reform proposals within the current system. I think they're important, and uh, I certainly support all of them. But there's, I think, uh, a fascinating, fairly new movement that has really taken root, mostly not in the United States, but around the world, and is becoming increasingly popular, and to me is maybe the most exciting activist movement of my life. And this is a movement which goes by the name of sortition, which is a, a word I didn't know before three or four years ago, and I'm sure many of you don't know, but it's basically about using lottery, random selection of citizens, and involving people in government in that way. In a sense, or directly what this movement for sortition argues is that it's not just about expanding who can vote. It's that voting is actually not the right way to do democracy and that we should look for 
another approach. And this movement has both a historical and a present moment to its argument. So Bernard Manin, who is a historian, classicist, um, who just retired, has argued that about Athenian democracy. And he makes two main arguments in his book on, on representative democracy. The first one is that lottery was central to the Athenian democracy, that the difference between Athenian democracy and our current representative democracy is not that in the Athenian democracy, you had more people, you know, direct democracy, and in our democracy, you have fewer people, a series of representatives. It's that the representatives we select are selected by election, whereas the Athenians selected their representatives by lottery. So this is a big argument. I mean, I think today, the, you know, when we talk about representative democracy, uh, many people say, oh, well, we have to use it because we can't have, you know, we're bigger than Athens, so we need representatives. His argument is it's not about size and it's not about, you know, the many or the few, it's about how they're selected. And his second argument is that the use of lottery was not just an accident of Athenian democracy, that the use of lottery had reasons and was fundamental to the Athenian idea of democracy, that the Athenians had an intuition, he says, that elections did not guarantee the right kind of equality. And there are three arguments he makes about how sortition speaks to democratic values. The first is rotation in office. The second is a democratic distrust of professionalism or political professionalism. And the third is the idea of isagoria, the equal right to speak before the assembly. So just to quickly go through these, the first two, rotation in office and a deep distrust of professionalism, I think go together. There's a strong sense at the heart of Athenian democracy that you had to have a rotation in office. Aristotle articulated the idea that one of the forms of liberty is to rule and to be ruled in turns. There's not just rulers and ruled. Everyone should both be a ruler and be ruled. And this commitment to rotation and choosing representatives by lot stemmed from a deep distrust of political professionalism. And so this leads into the second argument. Every political job in Athens was performable by non-specialists, except for a very, very few, like military leader or something like that. The absence of experts, uh, man and rights, or at any rate, their restricted role was designed to safeguard the political power of ordinary citizens. The safeguards are necessary, he wrote, because the assumption was that if professionals intervened in government, they would inevitably dominate it. And so for Manon, what he's saying is that there's a deep conflict between democracy and professionalism. And I think this is really important today because if perhaps if you want to understand a big part of the democratic motivational deficit today or the critique of democracy today, I think a big part of it is a critique and a discomfort with an increasingly professionalized and elitist government. You see this on the right and also on the left. And I think it's deeply important that we understand that one of the supposed values of democracy is that anybody can actually rule and not a chosen elite. The third part is this idea of the right to speak in public or isagoria. And for Manon, the point about lottery is that everybody has a right to speak. That's the value of it. And what he then goes on to say is elections only become a democratic idea in the 18th century with the French and the American revolutions. And that elections actually speak to a very different value than everybody has an equal right to speak and participate in government. The value that elections speak to is consent. And that representative democracy is structured on the value of consent of the governed as what guarantees legitimacy to government not on the value of participation and equal right to speak. If you go back to the Federalist, Anti-Federalist debates around the founding of the American Constitution, this is very much what they're about. The Federalists, like Madison and Hamilton, argued that you need to choose representatives through election because election will, will choose the more wealthy and also therefore 
those people who, if they have vices, they're better vices than the poor. So Hamilton writes in a speech he gives in, in 1788 that virtue and vice are both in the rich and the poor, but the vices of the wealthy are probably more favorable to the prosperity of the state than those of the indigent and partake of less moral depravity. Madison in Federal 10, which is you know, his famous uh, defense of large representative republics, argues that it will be more difficult for unworthy candidates to practice with success the vicious arts by which elections are often carried, and the suffrages of people being more free will be more likely to center on men who possess the most attractive merit and most diffusive and established characters. Namely, in a large republic, those who are wealthy and established will have their character shown and will be chosen by the electorate. The Anti-Federalists made the opposite argument that you need a wide range of people in government, not just wealthy people of good character. You need, according to Brutus, uh, one of the main anti-federalists, anti you need merchants, farmers, planters, mechanics, and gentry or wealthy men. Um, you need all of them. And he argues, and, and he and other anti-federalists argue that the government will divide itself, an electoral government will divide itself into classes, namely the rich and the poor, the educated and the uneducated. And this will create a natural aristocracy where wealth always creates influence. I think, you know, the fact that today in the United States, 100% of senators and 99% of, of congressmen are college educated shows exactly what the anti-federalists were worried about, which is that um, you will develop two classes. And I would say the classes have something to do with wealth today, but maybe even more so have to do with a certain kind of education versus non-education. At least in the United States, that's a, a big part of how we're currently dividing and thinking about the country. And so the question is, if elections are leading towards a class division, and by the way, Hannah Arendt argues in, in her essay on violence that the, in a way, the, the great divide of the modern period that leads people to feel disenfranchised is the increasing rule by a meritocratic elite. And that in her mind, the great class warfare is actually not even a class warfare, she calls it a race warfare, between those who pretend to be intelligent and rule through claims of intelligence and those who they claim are unintelligent. And she says this will lead either to a tyranny of the elite or a kind of racial war against the elite by the uneducated. Again, not to say that that's happening, but I think you see that in much of our politics today. And so, as I said, given this critique of elections and consent as the base of our modern representative democratic system, a new movement is emerging, arguing that what we need to do is not simply reform elections and make elections more broad-based, but we actually need to bring back the principle of lottery, of a wide, more widespread selection into our government. And this has emerged in a number of areas. On the one hand, you have people arguing for deliberative polling, like James Fishkin over at Stanford. And then the other is, and the one that we're talking about today, is these ideas of citizen juries. And around the world, you're starting to see citizen juries emerge, where not just like deliberative polling on the outside of government, but governments themselves are beginning to convene citizen juries. That means um, we use a random selection to select a certain number of, of citizens with no educational or wealth or any other criteria. And we bring them in and we educate them in the sense of they can bring in experts and they, we select some, but they select some. And there are, in a sense, advocates for different sides. And they meet, they learn, they read together, they talk. And over a series of weeks, they meet and come to a kind of deliberative conclusion. These are now being used all over the world. In the United Kingdom, a climate assembly is currently meeting where 110 people from all walks of life are gathering and they are deciding how England should pursue its target of zero net emissions by 2050. 30,000 people were chosen at random and asked to apply or, or to be part of this citizen jury. 2,000 people volunteered and 110 people were picked by a computer. A similar process, again, on the climate is going on in France, where 150 French citizens chosen at random have been brought together, 
and they are deciding how France should go about cutting carbon emissions by 40% before 2030. President Macron has said that whatever this citizen assembly decides will be brought unfiltered, that means unchanged by electoral representatives, to a vote of the French parliament. In Canada, a number of cities, including Toronto, are using these citizen assemblies to make major decisions now. In Melbourne, Australia, they're doing it. And in many ways, the sort of first large-scale use of these citizen assemblies to bring in unelected, randomly selected people to be educated and learn on themselves and deliberate and make decisions goes back to an experiment in Ireland uh, around 10 years ago in 2010, where the Irish Constitutional Convention brought together people to propose changes to the Irish Constitution. I have, as I said, been educated about this idea of sortition by a number of people, but it predominantly by um, some of my students, two of them, in particular, uh, Jonas Kunz and, and Hans Kern, who have started a, a group that the RN Center runs called BIRDS, the Bard Institute for the Revival of Democracy Through Sortition. And um, Jonas actually has, has worked a bit on the Ireland case, and I think he's here. Jonas, are you here? Gonna, he was going to give a presentation on the example of Ireland, and then we'll open up for questions. Jonas, are you on? Yeah. Can you hear me? Yes, I am. I'm going to share your slides. Is that all right? Okay. So, um, like you rightly said, uh, the one of the big big examples for sortition was the Irish Constitutional Convention. Um, the this this picture is from the from a referendum that was that came after the the citizens assembly. And this referendum was on repealing the Eighth Amendment, which essentially said that the, uh, it was a referendum on abortion. The Eighth Amendment essentially said that the life of the mother and the unborn child were equal. And the referendum, um, the repeal of the Eighth was um, approved with 66%, and um, there was a turnout of uh, 64%. So the uh, Citizens' Assembly, like you said, came out of the Constitutional Convention. So after the crisis in 08, um, the financial crisis. It came in Ireland with a with a crisis in democracy, and then they um, kind of ordered the constitutional convention, which was which was essentially a a random selection of sixty six citizens and thirty three politicians that would together debate different topics. And one topic that became famous was the topic of marriage equality, which they again the citizen ordered the constitutional convention in that case um, advised the government on on creating marriage equality. And from that on, we again had a, a referendum in Ireland, which was approved. So the way this works is that the it came out of the executive, the executive assembly, the citizens' assembly using administration. Um, the citizens' assembly again gave a kind of a recommendation back to the executive, and the executive then created a um, referendum out of this. Um, so the way these referenda, uh, these, the, these citizens' assemblies work, so this is in 2014 now, this is the citizens' assembly. The idea was that you would have, in this case, we had 99 uh, citizens chosen at random. They were stratified for age, um, location, and gender. So that it wasn't a completely random selection, but a stratified random selection. The participants heard inputs from experts, expert inputs on the topic. Um, evidence-based inputs, the idea here was just numbers, and um, subsequently were allowed to deliberate over, uh, over five weekends in a row. The deliberation took place in a way that the, so the 99 people were then separated into smaller groups, and these smaller groups were also rotated through. The idea here being that if you have a smaller group, you will eventually have some, some person at the table that will dominate the conversation. And um, by changing, by rotating this through, the idea was to kind of level this out. Um, also, every table had a facilitator and a note taker, and they would um, collect questions and um, ask the speakers, expert presenters, and number presenters. Um, okay, so these are measures of satisfaction within the process, and they're kind of interesting because one of the big challenges is, is this a fair discussion for everyone involved, right? These are people from all walks of life, and um, so one of the questions they were asked is, did, uh, did members respect my say on a one, two, five, with five strongly agree? And the, the polls show in this case that it was a fairly good deliberative process. 
And the deliberative process, as well as the expert presentations, were also accompanied by kind of a, a public outreach program. So um, before and there were live streamings of the expert presentations, and before and after there were submissions received from the public. But what is interesting to see, for example, is that these sub submissions really correlated with whether the topic was hot, was politically hot. So we can see that on the Eighth Amendment, there were 13,000 subscriptions on solutions for an aging population. There were 120 climate change, 1,200 uh, fixed-term parliament, eight, um, eight submissions. Um, and the same kind of counts for what happened with the recommendation from the Citizens' Assembly subsequently in the legislative process. So the Eighth Amendment that made one key recommendation became eventually a, a proposal for a referendum that was accepted. But on all other topics, uh, the topic didn't move to like a democratic decision-making process. So one of the big questions, of course, is how did the Citizens' Assembly inform the referendum? And so this was a, this was a poll done by um, B&A where they asked the voters in the referendum whether they were uh, aware of the Citizens' Assembly. And this was a poll done at the voting booth um, after voting. Next one. And what it shows is that, so these were the questions asked in terms of um, measuring whether awareness was true or not. And the poll was that whether these were randomly selected citizens, right? Whether the people actually knew about, to some extent, what the Citizens' Assembly was about, how it was convened, what the idea was. And it shows that about, yeah, around 70% knew that it was. Um, and about 15% um, had a false idea of it. And of course, this, this if, if you remember from the beginning, there was a turnout of 63%, about the same kind of you know, number or percentage of the population knew about the specifics of the Citizens' Assembly. Is there congruency here? Difficult to answer, but it shows at least that there was a majority knowledge of it. So this is, this is Twitter data where this um, referendum was discussed, where um, beyond Ireland, um, Kind of had a, had a scope that that was largely in North America as well, um, but also in, in other parts of the world. And the same was true. Now this is this is evidence from the um, abortion referendum. The same was true that the 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 depth of impressions was as strong in or almost as strong in Ireland as it was in North America. Okay, and finally, um, these were the costs. Um, interesting in terms of uh, the feasibility of a project like this. So the key learnings from the Irish example were, according to um, a bunch of researchers, um, I, sh I should say this, so the, 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 the Constitutional Convention as well as the Citizens' Assembly was essentially convened by an expert group of academics that helped design the whole process. Ownership of the process was taken by the administration, essentially. But what this shows is that the correlation between what was an successful random or a successful assembly and what wasn't was really a high of high importance was transparency um, and the communication of membership selection. Um, and that's it. Thank you. Thanks very much, Jonas. So look, we have uh, 93 people on this call. Uh, I can't see everybody as a result of that. So um, what I'm going to do is I'm going to look at the chat function. And if you have a question, please let me know in the chat function and I will call on you and you can unmute yourself and talk. So uh, we'll move from there. I see Abe and Pat Levy have a question. Do you wanna come on Abe and Pat or you want me to just read it? Uh, they ask, can the efforts of citizens like Katie Faye and organizations like the Princeton Gerrymandering Project revitalize democracy? You know, I think what I tried to say earlier is that there's sort of two different approaches to the question of how to deal with our democratic deficit. One is sort of reforming the electoral process, and the other is really questioning whether electoral representative democracy is uh, the right way to revitalize democracy. So I certainly think that our electoral process is to a certain extent broken. Uh, you know, voter turnout is is depressed, although that may always to some degree be the case. But there's a sense that the combination of money and, and gerrymandering and lobbying and corruption 
are making what is potentially a, a not a great process, but you know the process of representative government uh, even less representative and and less democratic. And so I certainly do think that efforts to reduce gerrymandering, efforts to uh, reduce voter suppression, efforts to continue to widen um, the electorate are, are important. And so I support those, and I think they're important in the efforts to reform representative democracy. At the same time, what you know I've been suggesting is that there may be a bigger problem and a bigger issue, which is whether elections are the best way to actually have a vital democracy. If your idea of elections is every two or four years you go to a voting booth and you vote, that's not a very vital citizen participation avenue. More than that, what elections really are designed to do, and this was very much the intention of the Federalists, uh, the Founding Fathers, was to, in a sense, limit who we choose to be our representatives to a kind of both wealthy and characterological elite. And to a certain extent, the claim was that these people would not be everybody, would not be the voters, they would be the good people. There was an idea that they would then go about the process of deliberating and we would have a deliberative representative democracy. It is, as I've tried to argue, and it is uh, an idea of democracy that really emerged only in the 18th century and is based on this idea of consent rather than on self-rule. And uh, I think that the two projects for revitalizing democracy, fixing the problems with our current representative democracy, but also figuring out ways to incorporate self-rule and citizen juries into the democratic process is something different. And that's what I'm arguing is, is worth actually taking seriously. So there's a question from Mike Abram says, if people have to say yes to their selection, how do you keep bias out of that process? Um, I, I think that's a great question. And you know, this goes to one of the major criticisms of sortition. I think when people first hear about sortition, one of the criticisms I had originally or in my unschool, you know, in my thought was, well, I mean, aren't there some people we don't want participating in, in government and in, and in these processes? And when you look at the history of lottery and sortition in both ancient Athens and in the Republican city-states in Italy, where a lot of this was worked out, um, and they you had elaborate methods for sortition, in every case, there were certain ways to limit the people who were then picked by lottery, either by having them volunteer or having them be of a certain status or certain place in society. And so, you know, this question that Mike is asking, Mike Abram is asking is, well, isn't it not fully representative? And, you know, I think the answer is, is yes, uh, it's not. And you could have a choice. You could go to the root of juries, right? And, and basically require everybody to serve and not have them volunteer. And I think that's one legitimate way to go. And another is to say, look, uh, you know, you have to have people who are willing to do this and want to. I don't have a strong sense yet of which is the right way to go. I happen to like the current jury system in the United States. I think it's a great model. And I see no reason why we couldn't, if we, if we were to get serious about it, use the same jury system selection model for juries as we would citizen juries. Of course, there's problems with juries being potentially biased in the selection uh, as well. I, I don't think you're going to ever get fully free of bias. I don't think I don't think that's the argument we want to make. The argument is that you're bringing a much wider, non-professional, non-elected group of people into the deliberation process. If anyone feels the need to interject, I'm happy to have you unmute yourself and interject. I just don't want to free-for-all because we have a lot of people on, but I'll go through the questions. If you want to interject. I, uh, ask a question. Rob, yeah? It, it reminds me of the kind of definition of what, what freedom is. There's kind of a positive freedom where you as an actor can do what you want. And by doing that, you have consent kind of attends to the, the current way of representative democracy that we have. But there's also another sort of freedom, which is not being coerced by an external force. And it seems that our current representative democracy is, is controllable in some way. It's a process that can be controlled. The more it can control, the more that we can actually agree to consent, but also the more to the fact that we can be 
controlled as a coercive force. And it seems that adding some kind of random selection process kind of tends to that second form of freedom where no one can control a random outcome. No one can control a random outcome? Well, you can't predict a random, like if it's random, then you can't control who's going to be a part of that group. Yeah, I mean, I think that's right. Um, you know, the premise of consent is that we should only, we should only be governed by those who we select. The premise of sortition or democratic sortition is not that we should only be governed by people we select, but we should all have the capacity to be involved in government and also be ruled by those who are involved in government. And that the legitimacy of government comes from the fact that everyone can be both a ruler and ruled. I think it's just a different idea of where legitimacy comes from. You know, what you see is in the 18th century, consent almost without debate. I mean, that's the amazing thing about it. There was just very, the only place where you really see the debate happen, and that's why it's so fascinating, is in the Federalist Anti Federalist paper debate. The Anti Federalists brought up these questions, but um, they lost. And, uh, and that's why it went in the direction that it did. There's a question from Linda Brocato. How does the Electoral College fit in the ecology of democratic damage? You know, I think from my point of view, Linda, and which is not to say I know this 100%, I think the debates around the Electoral College are somewhat red herrings. The Electoral College was put there as a kind of anti-democratic fail-safe. It was there to prevent a kind of demagogic tyrant from being elected. Either we believe it's an important anti-democratic fail-safe and we should resurrect it in some way, or we think we believe in pure electoral democracy and we should get rid of it. What we've currently done is sort of just kept it, but it doesn't have much role anymore. I mean, at least in the electors idea, in the idea of, of picking it through the states instead of a, a, a national election, that's obviously was put in for different reasons to prevent the rule by urban centers as opposed to rural centers. And I think uh, right now, people in urban centers are unhappy with it and people in rural states are happy with it. I think that's a, more of a question. It's a good question. It's just not, um, to me, uh, it's another question of how do you reform um, our current system. I'm happy to take, you know, hear people disagree with me on that. I've just never thought that that was the main issue. From Jessica, I do not wish to come on camera. That's fine. My question is, are there currently any American politicians or advocacy groups who support lottery elections? Do you see America ever adopting it? I would predict a lot of skepticism from Americans. Uh, Hans and Jonas, do you, you want to answer that? Sure. Um, there is... There are a couple of advocacy groups, but nothing mainstream. Um, the, I mean, Extinction Rebellion is pushing for it here in Europe, at least that's big. But in the U.S., there's, yeah, it's the Center for Deliberative Democracy at Stanford and the Jefferson Center. In Canada, however, there is mass LBP who are doing excellent work on this and are actually quite established. I'll add to that, which is... I, I've been working a lot with um, David Van Leybroek, who's a, a Belgian writer who's done as much as anybody to popularize the idea of lottery uh, government. He has a book that was translated into English called Against Elections, which I, I recommend to people interested in this. We're going to be having at the RN Center, it's supposed to be in October. We'll see if we have to reschedule that because of the whole sheltering in place. If we do reschedule it, we'll probably reschedule it to March, but David will be one of our keynote speakers. We'll also have people from Jane Souter, who was active in the Ireland sortition movement, people from Mass LBC or M, I forget it, uh, in Canada, and other people active in this. And one of the things that our conference is going to sort of ask is, why is it that this movement for sortition has become somewhat mainstreamed in many countries in Europe? in Germany, in Belgium, now in France, in the UK, in Canada, in Australia, and yet in the United States, almost nothing. And so, you know, our conference is gonna be one of the first major conferences about this question, and it's partly designed to create some interest in it in the United States. But you asked Jessica also whether we think it will have any interest. I mean, I would assume that it would. I mean, this idea of an anti-elitist citizen 
activist way of bringing voices into government strikes me as something that's deeply American in some ways. And uh, I'm interested to hear why you think there'd be so much skepticism. You may be right, because of all the countries that are engaging in it right now, the United States is not one of them. Uh, and maybe I'm missing some reason why. Uh, Jonas, this is a question for you. Could you clarify the process from academic experts to the role of the administration you mentioned? Sure, yeah. Um, so the before the Constitutional Convention, which was, uh, which was assembled in 2010, kind of amid the crisis uh, from 08, there was an advocacy group um, for a sortition around David Farrell, essentially, from the University of Dublin. And they, um, they went around the whole country and um, started talking about this idea and eventually um, were called in by the Constitutional Convention to present a prototype of how to do a random selection. So there was, and David Farrell ended up being the head researcher of both the Constitutional Convention and the Citizen Assembly, I think, with having a lot more research leeway at the, in the second time. So there was this kind of academic steering committee or leadership around it. Yeah. Great. Steve asks, have any examples of deliberative juries been given any decision-making power as opposed to advisory capacities? I think there's, there's a lot of different experiments going on, Steve. One is citizen budgeting, uh, which has happened, started, I think, in Brazil and has now come around the world. And I was even involved in a citizen budgeting experiment in the United States, in New York. At least in New York, the numbers were so small as to be almost laughable. I mean, you know, in a sense, the New York City legislature allotted $5,000 throughout the city to be budgeted by citizen juries. I mean, $5,000 in New York City doesn't go very far. You know, I actually quit because I was like, this is ridiculous. I mean, you know, if you're going to give citizens power to budget and then you limit it to $5,000, I mean, what's the point? But there are, so I think in Brazil and other places, citizen um, budgeting is happening and citizens are having uh, some direct control and decision-making power. I don't know if there's been any, Jonas, do you know if there's any large-scale citizen juries that have actually been given citizen-making, legal power, decision-making power? No, not as, not as far as I know. Yeah. I mean, there were some deliberative, with the Fishkin in, in, I think, the 90s, there were some deliberative polls that had had a pretty big decision-making power, but nothing recent. Hans, am I forgetting anything? I actually can't think of any uh, examples of that myself either right now. Yeah, I'd like to take the next question though, if that's all right. The one about necessary steps to create something like this in the United States? Yeah. Go ahead. Um, so I think there's, there's sort of a distinction that um, the people at MassLBP make between how citizens' assemblies are framed by uh, the likes of these groups like ER, Extinction Rebellion, and others who are saying, you know, we need to take power back from the represented elect elected representatives. And the way it's being done in Toronto is actually quite different. They're offering a service. So they're actually a, a, effectively a business that goes along and says, we have this, we figured out this way in which we can basically offer you expertise that is of a higher grade than the sort of uh, decisions that you make without the informed deliberation of uh, citizens. So um, what they do is they say, uh, you know, we, we can create a representative sample of the population, put them in a room, give them access to expertise that is suitable to the question at hand, and then we'll furnish you with recommendations that will be of use to you as uh, whether it's a government agency, a council, um, or even a, a private hospital or something like that. You know, they want to know um, how do we dispense our budget properly, and and there's a, so there's a sort of an acknowledgement of the fact that um, that needs to be really made, which is that this is a offering. It's it's a it's a token of um, sort of a, a bridge that we can build to our representatives, at least the ones that are willing to listen who are looking for a better uh, reading of the will of the people. Yeah, so I think their framing is very useful in trying to understand how it could be put forward, not as something that polarizes and intimidates people, uh, politicians, and makes them think that they're just being sort of, um, power is being taken away from them and they're being forced to become accountable to, to citizens. 
and instead that this is a way that they can make better decisions. Thanks. I want to add to that and also pull in a question from Shayla Benabi, professor at Yale, who asks, I'm in favor of democratic experimentalism in the sense of John Dewey, but I think it is naive to want to eliminate the electoral process altogether in large and complex differentiated societies. In some institutional contexts, tradition would work, civil society, associations, universities, town governments, etc. So just to, to, to answer also the earlier question, again, and add on to what Han said, I don't think in the United States there's any chance of this idea becoming legislative, uh, at least not on a, a federal or state level. Um, we have federal and state constitutions, which clearly give uh, legislative authority to Congress or, or the legislatures and uh, administrative authority to the, the president or the executive. You know, I think as Hans was saying, and, and Jonas has said, the chance here is that governments may feel the need to, or the desire to, convene such uh, uh, bodies, not so that they have legislative power, but because they will um, bring more voices into the system. One could be simply a legitimating function, but also they would broaden the number of people and the kinds of people that are engaging in a debate, but also through a deliberative model. I think that's the key to understanding a lot of what makes this powerful. It's that you bring people together and you actually let them meet and talk to and learn from experts, but then also over a series of weeks or months, meet together and deliberate together. And that model, which is then publicized and talked about, to me is uh, an important addition, not only to the lawmaking process as an adjunct to it, but to our public image of what it means to do politics. I think that this would be enormously valuable to rethinking political debate deliver, and deliberation around the world, but I think in the United States. I don't know if you want to say anything more about that, Shayla. I'm happy to have you jump in. Uh, thanks, uh, Roger. Great to be here. And I'm so happy that you organized. Because I just want to add uh, just a factual point. Uh, my colleague, Helene Landemore at Yale, has written a book called Democratic Reason, where, in fact, in Iceland, they had, I think, a citizens' assembly of about 950 people or so. They were going to consider aspects of the Constitution. And that was the most ambitious sort of experiment. It turned out that the legislative um, bodies had a way of not taking their advice very seriously because of power issues. But in fact, experiments have gone further. Look, I'm in complete sympathy with the project, and I'm in complete you know, I very much want to see these kinds of efforts mobilized, maybe also because for so many young people, the defeat also of Bernie Sanders and all these utopian energies, they are going to go nowhere unless we can also introduce some new ideas and possibilities of having voice. I mean, my only remark here would be, is there a distinction between questions of principle and questions of policy? so that citizens' assemblies don't get bogged down on issues of policy, which do involve expertise. I mean, in Ireland, it was about the abortion question, which is a principal question, same-sex marriage. So that's uh, one, one has to see where these assemblies can really come in around fundamental issues and not necessarily dismiss or get rid of administrative or policy expertise, but say, hey, look, citizens have to debate fundamental questions of principle and value. And we have, and this is ours. This we don't want to give to technocrats or bureaucrats or something. Thanks, Sheila. And, you know, if, I mean, I will say that two of the most interesting citizen assemblies going on right now, I mentioned in my original talk, are in the UK and France on climate change. Now, climate change is one of those issues that some people would say needs to be done through experts and administrative technical elites because it's complicated and it's scientific and things like that. And yet, you know, we'll see what happens. I'm actually very interested to see what happens in both UK and France. You know, there's some people who think that this is the way to break through the logjam. Bring in experts, let them talk to the citizen assembly, but let this kind of a deliberative process work. I don't know if that, what you think of the climate change uh, model and whether you think that's where that fits on your 
you know, principles versus policy continuum. I don't know enough about being what's being debated, so maybe someone else can enlighten about what exactly the proposals are there, but maybe. Yeah, the one in the UK is to come up with how the UK should go about reaching its goal of carbon neutrality, zero carbon neutrality in 2050. And the one in France is to is how to get a 40% carbon emissions reduction by 2030. And so they're having citizen assemblies meet to come up with proposals, which will, at least in France, be brought directly to the French parliament for vote. That's the model in, in France. Uh, if I might add Thank something, you. Roger. Go ahead, Hans. Yeah, just going to say, uh, also, I think, um, again, MassLBP, I think, is a really good sort of organization to guide our journey of learning about how this can be effectively implemented. And they, they held a, a Toronto-wide referendum, or uh, what they call a citizens reference panel, Sorry, not a referendum, so Citizens Reference Panel on Climate Action. And I'd be happy to share that. And they had plans. I haven't heard back in the past couple of weeks, but they had plans to convene a nationwide assembly on climate in Ottawa this summer. I don't know what the latest is on that. I think this is one of the difficulties that maybe we could talk about now is it becomes a very, given the, how counterintuitive uh, our, this moment is for us, as people that we have to social distance, it makes this notion of putting people in a room together to discuss anything, unfortunately, unfeasible. And it doesn't, I, I don't think you could say that it's possible over the screen, over the computer. Just quickly, my, what I would say to that is um, maybe this is a, a circumstance that is an exceptional period, which much like in ancient Athens, where you had generals that were appointed, you know, military leaders that were appointed to make decisions on military matters, maybe um, in in an ideal a world where sortition was the way we made decisions, we would have set aside smaller groups of people that would um, come together to make decisions on behalf of larger citizens' assemblies in times that larger citizens' assemblies could not form. Something like that. Just an idea that I wanted to put out there. I think it's uh, thoroughly possible. Even Thanks, Hans. Peter writes, what would be the necessary steps to create something like this in the U.S.? generated by government or foundations at a local state level or national. You know, I think Hans has mentioned um, this Canada group a, a number of times, which is a private foundation. Uh, actually, I think it's a for-profit group, actually, uh, if I'm not mistaken. And they have become sort of, they've created a market niche in how to create these groups, how to the, these citizen juries or citizen polls. And uh, I could easily imagine uh, companies in the United States, for-profit and non-profit, doing such things. As has been mentioned, James Fishkin, Jim Fishkin at, at Stanford has a, a non-profit which does deliberative polling. And, you know, the deliberative polling is not a governmental process, but it's, it's along the same lines about trying to create polls that are not just opinion polls saying, what do you think, but having you deliberate for a couple days or weeks with a group of people and then seeing what you think. But there's no reason why the city, so for example, at the conference that I'm organizing, which was supposed to be in October and maybe in March, and I will see, I've reached out to two local mayors. They're, they're actually, they're not called mayors, but we'll call them mayors for now, in two towns in the area near where Bart is. And um, I've asked them, so David Von Raybrook, who's gonna be at Bart as a fellow and has written on this a lot, is gonna teach a course at Bard. And that the first day of the course, the two mayors are gonna come into the class and tell the class about the most difficult issues facing their towns. And the class will then spend the next five weeks designing what would be like a citizen assembly or jury that would address those problems. And then at the conference, they're gonna present how that process worked and what it would look like. There's no reason why the town of Red Hook um, or Pine Plains, these two towns near us, couldn't then take that design that our students come up with and have a citizen assembly. There's no legal reason they can't do that. And they can then either take the advice of the, of the citizen assembly or not. But I think both of these mayors are actually very excited about the possibility of implementing such, a, such an event. I mean, whether they have the money for it, et cetera, we'll have to see. Um, but there's excitement about it. And I see uh, great potential on both the local level, potentially on the state level, 
And I don't see anything stopping it on the national level as long as there's someone interested in it who's either president or in Congress. I think you need, it, it probably has to come in some sense from uh, a presidential leadership if it's on a national level in the United States. I don't know. But I think it's certainly possible. And part of what we're trying to do is at least raise awareness of it and get people talking about it. Peter Nelson writes, how infused into the ruling of the ruled is sortition? I'm not sure I understand that, but it seems limited to occasional referenda while the rest of government continues unaffected. Not clear how much that improves things, although it sounds promising. Oh, okay, so I think I get it now. Um, so, you know, there's different ways to imagine this. One is on an issue by issue basis, which is the way these things have largely come about so far. So, you know, you have an issue like climate change or gun control or abortion or gay marriage, which splits a country. And you ask, what do you think we should do about this issue? And you create a citizen poll and they come up with an answer. And then the legislatures can vote on it or not. And even if they vote on it and vote it down, that answer now enters the public realm as the answer of a deliberative body. Um, and it becomes part of the debate. But there are people who proposed more radical implementation of sortition or lottery government. Someone who has done something like this is someone named Terrell Boricius, who was a former legislator and then started writing on this. They have argued that uh, you, you could actually create advisory bodies that would actually be part of the lawmaking process and wouldn't violate the Constitution. And you could even create uh, the Congress, let's say the House of Representatives wanted to, they could, in, they could fund and invoke a citizen assembly every year and say, every year a citizen assembly should meet and pick three to five issues that they would like Congress to address. And then Congress would have to at least open a debate and seek to address those three to five issues. Again, nothing prevents us from doing it, but these are possibilities. I think I think the, the possibilities are endless. Uh, one can imagine many of them. So we're, you know, you see where it goes. Charles Nathan writes, do you think that average citizens will find decisions made by sortition bodies to be legitimate given their current popular understanding of de democratic legitimacy? If these bodies won't be making decisions but merely advise our elected representatives, then do we still have the same problem with elected representatives that we did in the first place? Uh, look, good questions. Um, you know, I think what Shayla said about young people and they're feeling, you know, I think there's a lot of people who feel disenfranchised in this country and cut out of the system. One is young people. Another was the Tea Party, although they, they seem to have become more enfranchised. Um, the Occupy Wall Street movement, Black Lives Matter. I think there's a lot of movements out there by people who feel uh, disenfranchised. And I mean, I think some people might think sortition is the silver bullet that's going to solve all our problems. That's certainly not my opinion. You know, what I tried to say is, I think we have a lot of ways. There's reform. So there's gerrymandering reform. There's voter suppression reform. There's letting inmates vote. There's a lot of different things I would like to do to make our current, there, there's, there's campaign finance reform, which to me is a big one that I would like to see happen. I understand those who say we should just change everything and make it sortition. I certainly don't think that's possible or likely or even potentially desirable. But I do see it as another arrow in our quiver, uh, another way to bring a wider range of people into the government and the ruling process in ways that I think are not only powerful in the results it might lead to, but in its example of what democracy is. What I like about it is its focus on deliberation and its public focus on deliberation so that these become models of what deliberation does and can accomplish. And that's what I think is powerful about it. Steve Greenleaf writes, elections are necessary but not sufficient. They are the simplest form of speech. That is yes or no, candidate A or B. I think that's right. I'm gonna see if I can get to people who haven't written in before. Emily writes, can Jonas say a bit more about the design of the process in Ireland? Isn't there an inherent problem with skepticism around selection of who gets to design it. Jonas, do you want to say something about that? Yeah, sure. I mean, yes, you have to. That's one of the that's one of the big challenges. You always have to have the designers for these processes. I mean, eventually you could, you know, you could develop a, a process of designers that is randomly chosen, or you could you can go next level, or you could um, create kind of standards. Um, 
the standard usually is um, you do a random selection where you have you create um, you do a random selection of let's say uh, thirty thousand people each get a letter in the mail that is do you want to participate they not only say do you want to participate but what are your characteristics and specifically the characteristics that you want to stratify for so usually age geographic location and gender and um, in the return right you you not only get the positive yes I want to participate but I'm also I live here, I'm this old, and this is my gender. So this is kind of, this is, this is one side, this is the selection process. But then, of course, another big issue is the, who chooses the experts that participate, um, that speak in front of the jury. And then here the idea again is, okay, you make it as comprehensive as possible um, by saying, okay, we do not pre-select, we, we pre-select as little as possible, we make it as substantive, as comprehensive as possible. But this is, this is a really difficult question, and this is one that is, let us try to be answered by many different examples of doing it, um, but also, you know, some people are trying to develop criteria that would help doing this. Yes, I hope that answers the question. Great. Um, I'm going to just pick a couple of things that seem to be ideas we haven't talked about before. So Susan Oberman asks, in juries, the lawyers have a chance to eliminate some people. Uh, you know, that's that's right. And that both is, you know, designed to prevent people with biases and also um, can be seen as precisely that, biased in selecting people who have views we don't like. I think in this kind of a poll, uh, you don't want to let something like jury selection happen. You want to, a certain degree, let people in with biases. That's the whole point. I don't know if, Jonas, you agree with that or, or not, or Hans. Um, I would agree with this. Um, partially, the idea is that the body is always collegial, right? The idea is that you don't only have 11 jurors, um, you have close to 100 people, sometimes 300 people. Um, and the idea is that you do want a, a wide variety of opinion. Um, one interesting, maybe one very interesting aspect, uh, which goes back to the deliberative polling, is that most of, so most of the decisions that are reached by these petitioned or randomly selected bodies are social or of a social nature. Usually the decision made is more social than the than the initial beginning, the initial consideration. And James Fishkin has a bunch of data on this. But what is interesting is that usually the, there is a wide variety of knowledge on the subjects. For example, um, an increase in income tax. And what seems to be changing, so the, the, the general knowledge index of the people present usually doesn't change much. People I mean, it's hard to correlate, but people seem to learn something about the something about the subjects at hand, but not not crazy amounts. But the decision, when the decision preference shifts to like to a social area, um, usually significantly around thirty percent, something like that. And what that might suggest is that it's not so much a matter of education that is happening here, or a matter of knowledge rather. Let's not call it education; a matter of knowledge. Um, but rather that the decisions are being reached in a social space. So it's not the better knowledge that makes the social decision, but it's that the decision is being reached in a social state or social environment. And I think that is something that is that is kind of important to consider in, in, in also these selective processes. Yeah. And if I could chime into that, um, it's what uh, Peter McLeod at, uh, again, MassLBP, uh, refers to as a, a shouldering of responsibility. So at the beginning of any kind of uh, session where you have freshly convened, uh, you know, a group of randomly selected uh, members of the public, the first thing that they, he will do is make people aware of the fact that they're taking on a responsibility. So they're not just there in their, as embodying their own interests and needs, but um, on behalf of a proportion, the proportion of the population that they are a demographic sort of uh, sample of, in a sense. So if you're there on behalf of 100 people, that means that you're not thinking just for yourself. You're thinking for 100 people, and you don't know what you know. You don't know what their how their views may differ. So there's a real uh, shift that you undergo as a person who is previously disenfranchised. You had your own opinions, but they didn't really have any import in the public sphere. And now you enter this space, and all of a sudden you have responsibility. And with that really comes the sense of, wow, this is much more important. This goes beyond me. Um, it's actually it's a civic duty. 
And he says that this shouldering of responsibility is actually something that people really enjoy. And um, it makes for a much, much better kind of form of exchange of ideas than disenfranchised discussion. Thanks, Hans. Does anyone want to alert me to their question and raise their question? Hey, hey Professor uh, Berkowitz, Scott McLean. How are you? Good, Scott. How are you? Good. Yeah. Um, as you know, I'm, I'm all for Joe the plumber getting a voice. So I, from that standpoint, you know, this is kind of a, you know, exciting from my standpoint. And I also realize that there are ways this can be used you know, on a, on a smaller scale, but I, I do have a couple questions uh, maybe to Jonas or whatnot. Number one, how do you prevent tyranny of the uh, majority? So for example, you know, with the referendum on Brexit, you know, as soon as it passed, everybody wanted a new referendum. And then, you know, if they had a new referendum, probably they'd have another, you know, a, a big call for another referendum. So it seems to me like on big issues, like let's say you had 30,000 people deciding something really controversial, like let's say abortion or affirmative action or, or something like that, you know, let's say it was 15,000 and two, four and, you know, 14,998 against, it seems like you'd almost have to table it. It seems like you would need to have a super majority to really make it legitimate to protect against, you know, people wanting an immediate recall. And I also realize this is very preliminary, but has there been any thought given to that? Well, I'll just say quickly, Scott, I mean, as I think we've all said, the premise here is not mass democracy. It's not 30,000 people. In fact, the whole premise, as I understand it, of the move to sortition is not based on bringing the many into government, but to bringing deliberation into government from people who are not selected by election, which, have, which usually creates a, a limited group of people, but selected through sortition. I don't know, Jonas, do you want to say anything to that or Hans? Yeah, I guess I would say that, uh, yeah, I think it's more a question of creating a space that is representative of the wider majority, of the wider majority. Of, uh, not majority, but of the population at large, and ensuring that they, this majority of which you rightly say there is the danger of them becoming tyrannical or making decisions that override very important minority needs or needs maybe, or interests, is that you have this very good process that is robust in producing uh, decisions that are in the best interest of the population at large, of the largest kind of range of the population that you could hope to make decisions on behalf of. And the reason you will have the approval of the population at large is because they see that the process agrees with the principles of democracy insofar as they are being proportionally represented. So that means that there is someone who represents their income range and their gender and their orientation with regards to this, that, and the other. And then they trust that the decisions that are made are then sort of better than the ones that they would have made without having gone through this process of becoming informed and exposing their views to the views of others and then this kind of formative process. And I think that's that's really important. Like something is really created through this. Yeah, I, I agree with all that. I would say like, and I, and I also realize this is advisory and not binding, but you know, a representative might take these results and use them as binding. And my only concern is, is I don't think that and I'm just thinking of laws or whatever that I disagree with, you know, if 60% of Americans agree with a different law, you know, I just suck it up and say, hey, that's a supermajority, that's 60%. And I think our founding fathers put in some of those checks for a supermajority. And I would just be concerned on a really close affirmative vote when it's, you know, 50.001% to 49.so-and-so basically making a big decision based on that, because I don't really, you know, I think there's some dangers there. But overall, I think uh, I'm really interested in learning more about it. Yeah, sounds good. And I agree. I mean, that's, that's always a thing to look out for, I'd say, in any process. All right. Thanks to um, Jonas and, and, and Hans for working with me here. And Larry, do you want to you wanna take over? Well, it's not much to take over. Just uh, thank everyone for coming and participating. And obviously, thank you, Roger. And uh, Love to have you back, maybe in person someday, if feasible. That would be nice. And, uh, just thank everyone and uh, stay safe, be well, and um, have a great rest of the weekend. Thank you all. Thanks, Larry, for making this possible. It was a good group. Bye, guys. 
We hope you have enjoyed this conversation with Roger Berkowitz and Jonas Kuntz. If you enjoyed listening to this edition of the Amor Mundi podcast, please visit us online at hac.bard.edu and click subscribe to find podcasts, original writing, videos, and more, all delivered twice a week to your inbox. It's bold and provocative thinking in the spirit of Hannah Arendt, and it's free. To learn how to become a member of the Hannah Arendt Center and support our work, just click on Join HAC.